So to start this morning's sermon, I want to read a, from, from Colossians and buckle up. We're going to read a considerable portion of God's Word as we get ourselves ready for going through this book over the next several years. It's not being facetious. Uh, we preach these books very long because you are careful not to miss out on any of the very important points. So let's read from Colossians verse 1 in chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Give thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. With the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order, your, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, over, over them in him. And may God bless us this lengthy portion of his word. I've taken time to read this this portion, as long as it is, for, for two reasons. Number one, this morning I'm going to do an introduction to Colossians. And introductions, uh, certainly when I do them, can become a bit of a learn more than a sermon. And I'm going to try and not do that too much. Uh, but it does tend to get a little bit teachy because we're going through some facts that uh, gives us a contextual uh, background to where... Uh, to the letter, so we know who's writing, why he's writing, who's he writing to, from where he's writing. So those things are not insignificant because Paul uh, and other writers mention some of those things in the epistle. So I wanted to read this so that at least if I say nothing more substantial than God's word has spoken substantially to you already. Secondly, I want you not to uh, be um, mis to misunderstand the fact that this is a Tremendous epistle. It's a short, one of the short epistles. But make no mistake, uh, even though today we'll only do introduction and just briefly touch on the beginning of this epistle, this contains a wealth of theology. In fact, Colossians contains some things that are unique to Paul's uh, theology. Some things he's never taught before comes out here, and we're going to see over time it's because of the conditions that were prevalent in the church. Uh, Paul addresses the problems in the church, uh, and he addresses them in a way which is with authority, and he, he, he opens and, dis and discusses things yet he dis discusses nowhere else because this church um, is faced with a significantly um, erroneous teaching, which we'll get to, not today, 
sometime in the future if the Lord hasn't come by then. And so, having read this portion of Colossians, uh, I really want to go into the into introduction and help us understand what we are going to be prepared for as we go through this book week by week. We've already visited this church, haven't we? So this is not new to us. We have already spent a couple of months visiting with a family in this church. Uh, we all spent time with me as we went through the family of Philemon. Uh, we spent time in that, in, that, in that home. We spoke about Philemon. We were introduced to his wife, Appia, his son, Archippus. And so we spent time in a home of a family that is in the church at Colossae. In fact, the church at Colossae is in their house. Uh, we were also introduced to someone who was part of their house and came back a brother, Onesimus. So there's people that are in this church that you and I know. So this church is not strange to us. We've been here before. We visited the family. Now we're going to visit the church. And what's going to be very striking as we go through Colossians, we're going to see if you're going to remember Philemon, how different Paul writes in the one case as to the other. Paul tunes his, his teaching to the need at hand. And you can see we're going to move from an epistle that was written to a person and to a family uh, by default uh, on the private matter in a way which was written very pastorally, uh, written in a way which was very encouraging and in a way which uh, tried to bring Philemon to a point where he could do things clearly aware that the the Apostle Paul was dealing with him in a loving, caring, gentle way. And the the Apostle Paul is going to now switch tack and he's going to be dealing with a church in which Philemon is a member, which is uh, home, and it's, it's a breeding ground of uh, a heresy. And Paul's going to challenge that uh, now in a very different way. Uh, he doesn't lose his pastoral mantle. He remains that to the end. But when Paul needs to deal with, um, with heresy, uh, with, with, with problems, with issues, with, with things in the church that needs to be addressed, he does so unashamedly. He does so without pulling punches, and he does so clearly uh, to glorify God. So to get an understanding of, of, of where we're going and the epistle we're reading, very often I think we lose sight of the fact that this book is a whole. This is a single book. Yeah? 66 uh, different books, uh, 66 uh, different areas that we're reading, um, 40-odd writers uh, written over a period of, 1,500 years, but it's still a single book. And if you think about the New Testament, it's, it's cohesively put together. The, we spoke about this, I think it was on Wednesday, uh, if it wasn't on the pulpit last Sunday, about the, the interconnectivity of Scripture. It is interconnected in significant ways, uh, primarily doctrinally and theologically, because no part of any part of the Scripture says something different to the other parts. So so doctrinally and theologically, it is all interconnected, and it supports other. No scripture is out of tune with any other scripture, whether it's from Genesis chapter 1 or the end of Revelation. All scripture synchronizes together because God controls what has been put, what has been put in his book. But these epistles also link together uh, um, categorically. So Paul has written a, n- a number of epistles, written 13 in all. He's written 13 epistles, um, and the first epistle was written about, about 15 years, about 11 years before, before Colossians. Galatians was his first epistle, 
But then shortly after James, which is the earliest epistle, which we've been told so clearly, we know that, that everything in the New Testament starts from there, taking its point so clearly from James. Almost in the next year, Paul writes Galatians. Uh, and as he writes that epistle, he unpacks certain things in a very specific way. It's amazing how the, how the link between Galatians, written uh, 11 to 13 years before Ephesians and Colossians, has so much common ground, because that is so, because it shows Paul's hand. But nonetheless, he starts with Galatians, and he writes uh, First and Second Thessalonians, dealing with, uh, with problems in the church there, where they were concerned about the coming of the Lord. So a young church battling with eschatology. He gets to the middle of his, his writing program, and he deals with Romans, that that monument of, of doctrine, Romans, which he writes to, to address the church at Rome. And so he writes this in, in the middle of his, of his, of his, of his writing um, uh, um, uh, history. And as he comes to the end of his life, we find that Paul is in, uh, at this point in time, he writes Colossians, he's in Rome, he's in prison. It's the year 60 to 62, somewhere around about there. And Paul has has become an older man. Uh, he's in his late 50s probably, but by all intents and purposes, an old man for those days. Uh, he's in prison. He's in prison for Christ. He's in prison in his own house, uh, not a harsh imprisonment, but nonetheless in prison. And so as we stand that time, as we gaze across the uh, 11, 13 years of Paul's writing history, we find he ends up in prison and writes these prison epistles. Uh, um, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, known as the prison epistles. He wrote all his epistles in, while in prison in Rome between the years 60 62. Uh, it's an interesting side note. In the prison with him, we know there's one person, one of the few people called Luke. It's at this very time that Luke writes both his gospel and the Acts. It's quite interesting how we don't think of that when we read it. We see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we think, oh, that's in the beginning, and then we see Colossians at the end. Paul is sitting with Paul. Uh, Luke is sitting with Paul in a Roman prison, and most likely, from what we can tell, writes his gospel and the book of Acts right from that same time. So um, these things all tie together somewhere, whether it is doctrinally or even historically, we find that this is a huge uh, connectivity in the scriptures. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossian church. Uh, what do we know about Colossae? Well, some facts which is not totally isolated from understanding of some scriptures. So Colossae was located in a, uh, in a place called the Lycus Valley in Phrygia. We spoke about Phrygia before with Philemon. Phrygia was a place where it housed many slaves, and it was said by some ancients that the slaves in Phrygia were a pretty bad bunch. They were the guys who were probably unionized to the guilt. They're the ones who gave their owners a hard time. And Onesimus if we can take what we know, what we read about him in commentaries, was a typical slave of his time. So this was in the area of Phrygia, a province of Rome, today known as modern Turkey. So if you go and look at modern Turkey, that's the area we're talking about. Colossi was at the foot of a mountain. It was in the valley at the foot of a mountain. And as people looked out of their back doors and looked at the mountain behind them, uh, Mount Camus, it stretched twice as high as Table Mountain. So if you look out of the door, you saw a mountain twice as high as Table Mountain. And it's significant because there's something about that mountain which I'll bring to your attention very shortly. This high mountain peak uh, was a source of fresh run, running cold water. In fact, that water was used for the main craft, which was a part of Colossi, which was dying of hull. 
Colossae started 500 years before the writing of this book. It was an old city, and it was a prominent, prosperous city that had the craft of dying wool and it used water from this mountain to, uh, to in, the, in, in, in that process. Historically, I recently said it was a five-year-old city by the time of the writing of Colossians. It's a thriving city. Um, but by the time of Paul, it has declined. It's declined and it's been taken over by Laodicea and the Raphlis. These cities became more prominent and Colossae has started to shrink. And so the church in Colossae is kind of no longer the prominent church it was before, uh, when the Paphras started it, it's now kind of in the shadow of Laodicea and, and the Raphlis, and especially the Ephesians to a large degree. Shortly after the writing of this letter, Colossae is raised to the ground by an earthquake. Colossae disappears. Uh, and we find that even though Colossae is in the region of the seven churches of, of Revelation, it's not mentioned in the Revelation. Uh, very likely because it doesn't exist when those churches were addressed in Revelation. John writes to Ephesians, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and Laodicea, but not to Colossae, who's right there next to Laodicea and Herapolis. And it's believed that Colossae no longer existed. There was a race the ground, but by the year 1995, it had not been rebuilt. Whereas Laodicea had been built. And this is a very interesting Note that we find in our Bibles that we can glean from this geographical, historical event. Turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And I want to just point out how as we study God's scripture, we must not lose sight of the facts that are instilled by God in scripture. We just think in passing, oh, it's, it's, it's a thing, it's a name of a town, it's a time, it's a date, it's a person. Every word, every scripture has been inspired has been God-breathed. That means not only all of Scripture, but everything in Scripture. So even those things, the names and the times and the dates, is part of God's breathed-out word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, would that you are either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now we say that, oh, well, that's kind of makes sense. But you know something? It made more sense to the layer of the sea church than it makes to us. Because I just said to you that Colossi had ice cold water. On the other side of the sea, there was a town called Rappers, which had hot springs. And the hot springs, which was refreshing and invigorating, uh, that water ran down into uh, Laodicea, and the cold water of Colossae ran down into Laodicea and met in an aqueduct and became lukewarm, tepid water, which nobody wanted to drink. So the, 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 the distasteful reality of something in, Coloss in, in, in Laodicea in the year 95 made sense to them because of the geographical conditions. So these things don't happen by chance. And when the, when the Holy Spirit uses those examples to the people to whom it's been written, it makes absolute sense to them. And that is our job as we preach the word of God to you. To first try and understand what the word meant to the people to whom it was written. Because to them it would make totally clear sense. And we're going to experience that in this epistle because we have no idea what the problem was in Colossae it was never defined. It was never spelled out. 
And so what we do as we go through this book is we do what is called mirror reading. We look at Paul's answers and we try and see from what he says, uh, interpret what was most likely the issue being dealt with. We don't know. But when Paul wrote to the Colossian church, they knew exactly what he was talking about because it was a reality in their day as much as the lukewarm water was a reality in the day of the Laodicean church. Another point, for instance, the Laodicean church was the one church that rebuilt itself after, after the earthquake um, because they were rich, they were powerful, they were self-sufficient. They didn't even go to the Roman authorities for money. And listen what, what, what John says in Revelation chapter 14 about the same church. But you say, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I have need of nothing, not realizing you're rich, people, poor, blind, and naked. Again, the Holy Spirit uses a very real situation in Laodicea to point out to the Laodicean church just how pitiful and blind they are because they relied on their own self-sufficiency. So I'm taking you there to show you that as we read Colossians and as we look at the history and context of Colossians, we learn things from Revelation, which we would not have known if we didn't have done. So please, I want to encourage you to go through these, uh, these scriptures carefully. When you see something that seems out of place or just inconsequential, it's not out of place. It's not inconsequential. It is there by the Spirit of God. This church is mainly uh, Gentile, but they're also Jews. Uh, about 200 years to 300 years before this, a number of Jews, about 2,000 Jews, were moved from Babylon into, from Babylon into Corinth, into, into Colossae. And so there was a significant Jewish population there, uh, but mainly a Gentile uh, community. Uh, but this Jewish Gentile demographic manifests itself later in the, in, the, in the way the church is made up and in the problem that arises because we're going to deal with Jewish uh, legalism and a pagan mysticism which raises its head in this church. And so these things are there because of the way the church is made up. What about the church at Colossae? The church at Colossae was founded by, by, uh, by Epaphras, not by Paul. Paul's never been to Colossae. Paul writes to a church in which he only knows some of the people. Epaphras most likely got saved under Paul's preaching when he was in Ephesus, a, 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 a town he would have traveled to from Colossae in the course of his business. And so Epaphras was most likely converted under Paul in, in, in Ephesus, comes home to Colossae and preaches the gospel. And by preaching the gospel, Philemon is saved, and others are saved, and the church is started in Colossae, in the home of Philemon, because of the ministry of Epaphras, Acts chapter 19. Paul intends to come to the city, we know that from, from Philemon, verse 22, where he says to uh, Philemon, prepare me a room, because I intend to be with you there, but he has never been there before. And so we know that this church at Colossae is a church that meets in the home of Philemon, a prominent uh, slave owner, businessman, uh, loving, caring brother in Colossae. Problems in the church. The point of this epistle is that there are problems in the church. Well, it's hard to find a church in the New Testament that, in which there were no problems. There's only one church in, uh, in, 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 um, in Revelation where we find that there's no problems in the church of Philadelphia. But other than Philadelphia and Revelation, every other church we have uh, has problems that has to be dealt with. Hence the writing of Paul to those churches. He's there writing to them to deal with issues that was invading the church, damaging the church, destroying the church, 
But there's issues while they were pertinent to those churches at the time, the principles that are applied there and the lessons learned apply to us today. Because whether we're living in Cape Town in the year 2022, whether we're living in Colossae in the year 60 or 62, or whether we're living in years before Christ, men's hearts have never changed. Men's hearts are evil. Men's hearts are deceitful. And sins that pervade their lives often brought into the church, not only because those in the church are saved, um, live into the flesh, but very often the church, like ours, has a mixture of those who are saved and unsaved, and so things come in sometimes in ways that need to be dealt with. There's a mixture of legalism and mysticism, and Paul doesn't identify it, but let me say up front, and we're going to say it right now, and we're going to deal with this, this is not Gnosticism. Please understand clearly, it's been said so often from pulpits, that Paul deals with the heresy of Gnosticism. There are elements of that resident in Colossians and elsewhere, but Gnosticism only arises somewhere in the middle of the second century. It's not a, it's not a, a system of philosophy and religion yet. There are seeds of it, but not that. So we're not going to go there. We're not going to give any extension more than what we're saying now. We're not dealing with Gnosticism. If you think we're going there in Colossians, it's not part of the text. And although the heresy at Colossi was not Gnosticism per se, it contains elements. And so we're going to look at things that Paul deals with here, which maybe will take us somewhere there, but I think we're going to be very clear from the text and stick to what Paul teaches the church at Colossi. Paul writes Colossi from Rome. He's in prison. It's AD 60-62, around about there. He sends a letter back with Tychicus and Onesimus, Onesimus, who left as a slave in Philemon, now returns to Colossae as a dear beloved brother and becomes part of the church. Epaphras, who started the church, remains behind in Rome with Paul as a fellow prisoner. He's probably kept locked up. Having gone there to get Paul's help, he's now there locked up with Paul in prison. And the church at Colossae is blessed with to have godly men in the midst. Philemon and Epaphras. Epaphras worked hard for them as he did for other churches. He was a man who not only worked hard for Colossae, but he worked hard for the church at Laodicea and Herapolis. That is as brief as I can be about introducing you to the context of the church we're going to be looking at uh, from this point onwards, the church at, Colossian, at Colossae. So let's get into the Colossian epistle. And this morning, I'm only going to have time for the, for the greeting. I do not want to gloss over anything. I think everything is significant. Everything we touch on in these epistles, this one elsewhere, opens a door for us to get a better understanding of what, of the way the Holy Spirit is working with these churches and in turn also works with us. Remember, these letters I've said before, and I will keep saying it, was not only for those churches. It was primarily for the churches, but it was to be read elsewhere too. And it's being read by us today, and we can learn from it today. The author, it starts out as saying Paul. Paul, an apostle. Paul has, as I said, written 13 books in the New Testament, and each one has been introduced by the name Paul. So when we read any of the epistles, we take for granted, hey, no problem, Paul wrote this. No questions asked. Well, that's not quite the case. Currently, there are seven of Paul's epistles that are unchallenged. 
where they are accepted as being written by Paul, and they are Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Most scholars today uh, would say that those are definitely Pauline epistles, but not Colossians. Many challenge the authenticity of Colossians as being uh, a, a epistle written by Paul. Now, this is not nothing uh, new today. It was, it is new up until the 18th century, because up until the 18th century, the church and church fathers accepted Colossians. There was no problem. But when historical criticism became the, the move of the day, uh, people started questioning whether this was really Paul. And often when we're reading, we don't give it a second thought uh, to the introductory words. Uh, we say, well, it's Paul, yes, and we accept it. And very, and, and very often we don't think further than that. Let me say up front, we believe Paul wrote it. And I'm going to have to show you that. Uh, but it is a challenge which you may face when you try and quote somebody uh, scripture from Colossians and we say, well, Paul didn't say it because Paul never wrote it. Well, let's get past that point so we can rest assured in our hearts as we believe our faith that this was written by Paul as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit and as God breathed the words that he should write in this book to the Colossians. Many of us seldom think about the scripture and we take for granted come that it that it, we take for granted that it's un, unassailed, but it comes under constant attack by men trying to impeach its veracity, trying to call its validity into question, and denying the plenary inspiration of Scripture. That means that whatever the Scripture speaks on, it speaks on authoritatively and truthfully. Nothing in Scripture, no matter what it touches on, does it say anything wrong, incorrect about the subject. It's not a book of science. It wasn't written to address scientific issues. It wasn't a, written to address uh, geographical issues. It wasn't written to address historical issues. But when it touches on science and history and geography, it is correct. In its original writing, it is correct. As we translations, we need to sometimes delve a bit deeper to find out how we got to what we have today. But in its original autograph, everything that Scripture touches on it is correct. It has been plenary. It's a plenary inspiration of the scripture. But there are two arguments that people have when they say that this epistle could not have been written by Paul. Number one, they say the language and style is too unlike Paul. Therefore, it had to be written by someone else. They say this is not Paul's writing. It doesn't look like Paul's writing. It doesn't touch on things that Paul would not have said. And so they say the language and style is too unlike Paul to be written by Paul. There's a second school. They say the language is too much like Paul to be written by Paul. It sounds like they were left-wing woke guys in Paul's day. They want both sides of the coin, and they want both sides of the fence, and they want to have an argument. The language is too much like Paul. It's, if you compare it to the Ephesians, therefore it must have been written by some copyist trying to imitate Paul. Well, the arguments are silly to you and me because we can see that this is not coming from people who are logical. They're trying to prove their own points, and they sit on, and I'm not talking about guys who are garbage collectors and motor mechanics and electricians. These are scholars. These are guys who have more degrees behind their names than a, anybody sitting in this room, but they come to these conclusions. Well, we believe that Paul wrote the letter for a number of reasons. The eternal evidence is, is clear. 
verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that, Paul an apostle, he names himself. In verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 23, again, he makes comments about himself. He gives his personal history. He says things that nobody else could know about him. And he says, he says things about himself that a person who's imitating him would not say about him. So, chapter 1, verse 23 to 26, Paul speaks about himself. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he says this. Uh, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He alludes to his imprisonment. So whoever wrote this book was in prison, and Paul was in prison. So that is a very clear link to Paul that I may make it clear, which, which is how I ought to speak. In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So Paul has made several claims from within the book that he is the author. And if you're saying that Paul is a liar, but you have to take that with Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and God, because God inspired this word, and the Holy Spirit moved Paul along to write it, and Paul wrote that under that guidance of the Spirit. Secondly, uh, early church fathers of the 2nd century recognized this book as being authentic. They recognized Paul as being the writer. No early Christian doubted Paul's authorship. Uh, all the early church fathers uh, took this to be uh, Pauline, uh, Paul wrote it. Uh, these are men who lived in a time that they were one generation away uh, from people who actually knew Paul personally. So they were very close. They weren't uh, generations away. They were just, the next, when we say the next century, a matter of uh, 50 to 60 years away from when some of the scripture was written. It was received without challenge and was put into the canon. The canon is what we have. The scripture from cover to cover is called the canon of scripture. And it has been received and been placed in. It has gone unchallenged up until the 19th century, 18th, 19th century. And this epistle to Colossians has been cited by men whom we can trust. Justin, Arrhenius, Clement, Tertullian, Origen, all quoted Colossians as authentic Pauline epistles the writing, and because of their, uh, uh, their commendation, we can trust them that they were close enough to know if it was a, a um, forgery or not. It would be very easy for them to find out uh, if it was written by a copyist and not by Paul. So we can rest assured that the man who wrote this to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped uh, for every good work, was the same man who was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote the God-breathed words that have, that's made up the epistle to the Colossians. Paul knew what it meant to be carried along by the Spirit uh, and to uh, record uh, in writing the words that God breathed out. When we say that God breathed out uh, all Scripture, it's not just that he breathed out the whole of Scripture, but every Scripture within the whole has been breathed by God. There is not a single word in the original autograph when it was originally written down. There's not a single word that was by man's imagination, uh, by mistake, uh, by, uh, by editorial comment. The original autograph was in totality inspired by God. God inspired or breathed out more correctly, Theos, Theopneustos, breathed out every word 
that was recorded by the men he chose to write. It's unchallenged. Uh, God wrote uh, the scriptures through the chosen vessels. They never, they never used the imagination. Uh, they never came up with their own ideas. And in a very, very um, supernatural way, a way we cannot explain, God, without detracting from their personality, their style of writing, their experiences, their knowledge, uh, and who they were as, as single entities, without minimizing that, God still uses that and keeps that out of the inspiration of his word. Uh, God alone breathed out his word. No scripture has been lost. And any letter that has lost, that is lost, was not inspired. Many letters have been lost. The letter to Laodicea, two to Corinthians, have been lost. Now, making that statement, no inspired scripture, scripture has been lost. And any letter that was lost was not inspired, based on what is said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Because it says here that God breathed out scripture... That was to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And there is some scripture that's been inspired, which has got something to add to that uh, completion of the man of God. It means we are being deprived of that. And that would mean that God has not given us everything. So on the basis of 2 Timothy 3, I firmly believe that no inspired scripture has been lost, and anything that was lost has not been inspired. It's out there. We can maybe see if you want to pick up a discussion on Wednesday. A number of theologians who keeps us, uh, keeps our feet to the fire. Thank you, Lord, for that. There are no hidden secret texts in some vault in the Vatican. People think that maybe there's some secret text, some secret coded message, somewhere that we need to uh, um, uh, engage with. There's no secret text in the vault at the Vatican. There's no archaeological find that will suddenly remove the authenticity, the veracity, and the completeness of the canon of Scripture. When people say they found some scrolls which maybe is going to not challenge the Bible, thank the Lord for that. Every archaeology, archaeological find that they do, every dig they do, and they find scrolls, they go back to the, uh, to the, uh, to the New Testament writing, thank the Lord for that. They're only going to find more proof that the Scriptures are real. The integrity of the, of the text uh, was God-breathed through the ages by copyists and, ma and manuscripts, uh, by copyists, but he has still maintained the authenticity of the scriptures by the manuscripts we find. In fact, when we consider the fact that uh, when it comes to just um, secular writing, uh, one of the most famous secular pieces uh, is Homer. Uh, Homer is held up as a significant classical work. Um, there's about 2,400 copies, uh, manuscripts of Homer, to prove the authenticity of, of Homer. When it comes to the New Testament, there's over 24,000 manuscript, uh, extant manuscripts that we can be pieced together, and from those manuscripts that we had in our hands, we're able to put together virtually the entire New Testament. In fact, uh, Dan Wallace claims that if we just take the quotes from the early church fathers alone as they quote the scripture, uh, we can take just the quotes alone and put them together, we'll find uh, the entire uh, scripture we needed. So, God has protected us. God's protected his word and thereby protected us, his church, uh, so that we are able to be fed from that which is uh, essential for our soul. Paul, an apostle. This is another word in Paul's epistle that we tend to gloss over. 
probably because we have become familiar with the name and the office, Paul the Apostle. Oh, it's Paul the Apostle. So what? Paul mentions that in almost every epistle. In almost every time he mentions Paul the Apostle. So if he's mentioning that, it can't be insignificant. Uh, he, let us go to letters are going to, to churches that, that know him and they will know it's from him. So why does he have to keep introducing himself in the same way? Well, maybe it was just because it was a way the letters were introduced, but to us it's significant. It says Paul the Apostle. Paul's frequent use of this designation in his epistles cannot be perfunctory. It must be important enough for closer consideration. Jesus had many disciples. We know from Luke chapter 10 that there were 70 disciples that were sent out two by two. But he had more than 70 disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, the Lord Jesus Christ says this to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So not only were there 70 disciples that we find recorded in Luke chapter 10, but there were many more. As the disciples went out and evangelized the world, many more disciples were added to the church as followers of Jesus Christ. We know that from Acts, 120 disciples at the beginning of Acts. Very soon as 5,000 people in the church. There were many disciples, so that word is a very broad term. But only 12 disciples were commissioned to become apostles. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. Just go there briefly. Luke chapter 6. Just in case you think that sometimes we say things that we don't want to verify. Verse 13. Verse 12. In, the, in these days he went up to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray with God. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose for them twelve whom he named apostles. And then he names the apostles, uh, or twelve of them, including Judas Iscariot, the traitor who for a very short space of time was actually an apostle. God works in mysterious ways. Don't ask us why. God chose Judas for a specific work by sovereign will according to his, to fulfill his decree. But Judas for a short time was an apostle. But we know Judas falls. We know that Judas betrays the Lord and eventually hangs himself and he has to be replaced. In Acts chapter 1, Peter speaks to the disciples and it says it's got to be replaced. And so uh, two men are taken, uh, Matthias and Barsabbas, and lots are cast, uh, which, was a, which was a legitimate way of making a choice. But the lot is not cast on the basis of luck. The lot is cast, and the prayer is, Lord, reveal to us through this whom you have chosen to replace uh, Judas. And so the Lord indicates to them that he chooses uh, Matthias. And so Matthias becomes apostle number 12. He's now 12 apostles again. But that's not only 12 apostles. We're reading about Paul, who was an apostle, and became an apostle when there were already 12 apostles in place. Acts chapter 9, most of us know that story. If you've been in Sunday school, you know that story. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is going about trying to decimate the church of Jesus Christ, taking those who are part of the way and persecuting them and killing them. And in fact, he stands uh, uh, in the open space, holding the clothes of people as they stone Stephen to death. That was Saul of Tarsus, a man that was bent on destroying the church of Jesus, church of Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus said, not only persecuting them, you're persecuting me. So on the road to Damascus, 
um, Acts chapter 9, Paul uh, is stopped by the Lord in a supernatural way. And Paul uh, recognizes that this is something that is supernatural. And the Damascus experience for Paul is a turning point in his life. He finds salvation. He meets up with the brothers in Antioch, and eventually he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. So he is apostle number 13. And so you say, well, that's it. No more apostles, right? Mm. Hebrews chapter 3, please. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to whet your appetite this morning so that you actually go and search for these things yourself. And don't take it for granted that things are as simple as they are when we read them. But they're all there for our edification as we go and look. Hebrews chapter 3. So we've just spoken about the, the apostles, uh, James and, uh, uh, sorry, about, uh, about Paul. But look at Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in, heavenly, in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So, according to the scriptures, Jesus is also called an apostle, but he's more than that. He is the apostle. And as someone has said before, when you think about this reference to Jesus as the apostle, you should be using capital letters all the way through. Now, all that it means is that he was chosen and sent. That is what it speaks about. Uh, and that word, apostle, means that. And so I've gone here to show you that it can be applied in a very broad sense, even to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is, in every sense of the word, the chief apostle. Sorry for those of you who still... And there are some of you here in this congregation or now members of the church who come from a place where they hold up a, a chief apostle. There's only one chief apostle, Jesus Christ. No one can replace him. So Hebrews tells us this word apostle is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the apostle from which every other apostle takes the authority and by whom every other apostle is called. So we now have 14 apostles in the scriptures. The 12, we have uh, Paul. We have Jesus Christ. Surely there can be no more. Well, quickly, go to Galatians chapter 1. And cast your eyes down to verse 19. Paul speaking. He's been up to Jerusalem. Uh, this is early days for Paul. Remember, Galatians was his first epistle, I said already, right? So this is early days for Paul. This is right very shortly after his conversion in those early years. So this is early for Paul. And he says here in verse 18, And after three years, this is me spent three years alone, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So it's another apostle, James, the Lord's brother. And so as we go through Scripture, we can find more and more people are called apostles. In Acts 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, later on he speaks about themselves as apostles. So it appears that there are not just 12 apostles in the Scripture. But be clear about this. When we read those things, do not be confused. Don't allow ourselves to be confused. There's only one who can be claimed the title of being the apostle, the chief apostle from whom all other states the authority is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3. God 
Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, carefully chose and selected specific men for a specific role, apostles, prophets, teachers. And the apostles that were selected by God, and they were uh, given a technical term, they had special authority, they had apostolic authority to do things that no other human apostle could do. They performed miracles. They did things that others didn't do. And they were the ones who uh, were able to establish churches, feed these churches, and, and build these churches on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So there was these special apostles, only 13, and no more than that. After them, there are many others who are also apostles who have been sent and commissioned to do things, and they are just ordinary people. And one of the terms applied to them in many ways are apostles, all small letters, no capital letters in that one. And so I want to make it clear to you that when Paul says he's an apostle, he's not just one of the ordinary apostles, but he's an appointed, commissioned, fully authorized apostle under Jesus Christ who he sees as his only and ultimate authority. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're still in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's apostleship would have been without authority had he not been, had he not been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no authority. Paul did not quite meet the criteria of apostleship when it came to Acts chapter 1. Remember when Peter, we've referred to already, when he and the other apostles went to replace Judas, they laid a very clear criteria as to what qualified a man to be an apostle. Number one, during the time that the Lord Jesus went about and was walking in the streets of Galilee, that, apostle, that person had to actually accompany him and witness that and uh, from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up. So to be an apostle, especially when he was chosen by other apostles, had to give evidence that he was with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ from when he walked around from the baptism of John right up to the ascension. And secondly, he had to be a witness of the actual resurrection, the resurrected Christ. So Matthias met that qualification, but not Paul. Paul didn't walk around with the Lord Jesus Christ from Galilee to the ascension. You may have seen him, I suspect he did, because he was in Galilee at the time. But he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, so he could not give witness that. Neither was he there to witness the resurrection. But this did not prevent him from becoming an apostle. Because when he was on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Lord arrested him on the road, and he became an apostle to the Gentiles, and a witness to kings and the children of Israel by a supernatural work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ chose him. He says that. He says that to Cornelius. He's chosen by God so that he may be a, an apostle to the Gentiles, a witness to the Gentiles, um, that he may be a witness to kings, that he may be a witness to the children of Israel. He's a real apostle in every sense. Paul, an apostle, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. This choice of Paul as an apostle, as he writes to the Colossian church, is with significant authority. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't an arbitrary historical event. It was according to the will of God. Paul's appointment was not, in, uh, was not something that just happened. It was inevitable, even if it was out of time. Paul was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, and the timing of that appointment was determined by Jesus Christ himself. Paul says he's an apostle born out of time. Uh, kind of shouldn't even be an apostle. Of all the apostles, he's worse, and I'll read it to you shortly. But the timing was right. The timing was precisely right. The place was precisely right. The place 
uh, and the events were exactly because Jesus Christ chose to call him at that time. And Jesus Christ, we know, does not make mistakes. Paul was chosen by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. The time of the appointment was determined by Jesus Christ, even though delaying it cost the lives of Stephen and countless other saints who were tortured and persecuted mercilessly by sore apostles. We ask this question so often. When somebody is saved, and they're saved late in life, and they're saved after being um, a horrible person, they could have been um, um, hooked on drugs and devastated their lives. They could have led highly immoral lives. They could have even committed murder. And after all those events, God saves them. He says, well, why did God not save them before when they were still good people? They've never been good people. But nonetheless, as humanly speaking, you say, well, how could God not have saved them then and saved them from all this horror and their family from all the sorrow? Why? Because God is God and God is sovereign. And God chooses to save whom he will, when he will, and what manner he will. All you and I need to do is to witness to those who are unsaved so God can use his word to save them. That's all it's about. God chooses to save them. When he will. And so Paul was saved after the death of Stephen, after, the, after hundreds of, of, of disciples were persecuted, after many were put in jail. God didn't stop that and save Paul to prevent that. Rather, while he was doing that in the midst of that persecution, God saves him. So God's time is always right. God's decree in his, is his eternal plan, whereby according to his, his decretive will and for his glory, he ordained. He ordained everything that comes to pass. God ordains things to come pass in ways that he alone knows. His decree is comprehensive. It includes all things. It includes the calling of Paul to salvation. It includes the calling of you and me to salvation as God called us, having chosen us, having predestined us, and having elected us. He's chosen us and saved us at the time which was the right time. When our hearts responded to the gospel call, when we heard the word of God preached in a way which with, with which we could raise no argument, our hearts broke down. We realized we were sinners. We repented of our sin, and we became children of God. We were translated from children of darkness into children of light, purely because the preaching of the cross had stopped becoming foolishness to us. It then became the power of God, and we were saved. Paul never loses sight of the fact that he is an apostle only because Christ Jesus chose him, and that God the Father willed it. He takes no glory for himself. Listen to Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Untimely born means that as one that's, that's miscarried, has been miscarried. That's the meaning of the word in the background. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So even though he persecuted the, the church of God, he is what he is, and God saved him, and God changed him, and that was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This was the man that wrote, The Preaching of the Cross, in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Preach of the cross is those who are perishing foolishness. For us who are saved, it's the power of God. For us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so Paul clearly understood his call in life. Paul clearly understood his, the call of God on his life. 
and Paul clearly understood what he was meant to do. And his assessment of himself was never one that placed him above anyone else. Even though he had the right as an apostle, the authority as an apostle, and the ability to place himself above many. He never. His humility kept him in the place where God was able to use him to write to churches from Galatia to Ephesians to Colossae and eventually to those personal pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. So, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Quickly, is Timothy a co-author? Many say, that, well, Timothy wrote this and not Paul. Well, let's get past that uh, little glitch uh, to some. Um, they say, well, the style of the writing is, is a certain style, and Timothy has family from that area, so maybe Timothy was the one who actually wrote this book, uh, and it's unlike Paul's other writing. Well, alternative is more likely. Paul was uh, a person who had difficulties, and as far as we believe, it was to do with his eyes, uh, but very often he used a secretary to write down what God was moving him along to write. God inspired, breathed out the words that Paul was to record, and when he couldn't record that, he would then dictate to a secretary, a writer, a scribe. God did not dictate to Paul. God carried Paul along by inspiring the words that were recorded, and Paul would dictate to a secret. Timothy was most likely a secret. So Paul could say to them, uh, from Paul an apostle and Timothy a brother, also it's possible that Timothy knows the people at the states of Colossae because of the closest to Ephesus. So, make no mistake it, make no mistake about it, Timothy is not the author, it doesn't carry the weight of the authorship of Colossae, although he may have been a, 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 a secretary, Paul clearly says, I wrote this book. And in the end, he literally takes up the pen to write the closing line, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Timothy, our brother, Timothy is Paul's brother, and Timothy is the brother of the church of Colossae. Hence, he's our brother. And so Paul says, Timothy, our brother, and uses Timothy as a link between him and Colossae in a way which is extremely encouraging. Both the use of the simple clause, Paul joins them all together in a common brotherhood before setting off on dealing with the problems in the church. Who are the recipients? And with this, I do close. To the saints, the holy brothers... In Colossae, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Colossae. The word saint simply means that, set apart, holy. A saint is not somebody who gets a title after they've, after they've died because they've lived some kind of life that many think is good. No one living anywhere in Rome can come to you when you didn't say, I confirm you sainthood. He doesn't have the power, the authority, the wherewithal, or anything. No one can make you a saint. Only Jesus can. And he does. They are holy and set apart. They are consecrated. And they've been made this way. They've been made saints. They've been made holy because they are children of Jesus Christ. They've been changed from children of darkness into children of light. And so they have been set apart. And the word saint simply means that you, sitting here this morning, if you are a child of God, you are a saint. You may not behave like that. Your wife may tell me something very different. Uh, 
But guess what? Let's, let, let's say this. Positionally, you are a saint. Well, practically and in your sanctification, I think we all have things to work on. But nonetheless, because of the work of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of the faith that God has given us to repent of our sin and trust in him and believe his word, we have been made saints. Ordinary people become saints. They become holy because Jesus, who is holy, has made us holy. No ordinary sinful man can make us a saint. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ has authority and power to make men holy. And he does that when they are alive, not when they are dead. And so we sing, purify my heart. Let me be, let me be as gold, fish, and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold, refine as fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Not only are they holy, but they are faithful. Faithful to Christ, chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. I'm not going there now. Faithful to the gospel, chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. Faithful to each other, verse, chapter 1, verse 7. So Paul's writing to a group of people that not only are set aside and are sanctified by the work of Jesus Christ, but they've been made faithful. They are able to um, have, a, have, a, have practice in their lives something they could never have done before they were sanctified. Paul's not writing this letter to everybody. It's not an open letter to the world at large. It's addressed specific to the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. And they are an extension of the larger church of Jesus Christ. To benefit from the riches of this letter, to you, for you to get, glean truths that's meaningful and life-changing from this letter means that you have to be one of the saints and the faithful. If you're unsaved, this is going to be nonsense to you. The preach of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's a clear point in the scriptures. But this is written to those of you who are saved. That doesn't mean that we leave those who are unsaved by the roadside. Our prayer and our, and our, and our, and our desire is as we preach to Colossians and you see how Paul deals with the gospel. As Paul presents the gospel and as we will endeavor to present the gospel through these, through these uh, various verses that you will come to see your need of salvation. If you have never uh, come to a point in your life where you know for sure that God has saved you, that he's changed you, that you've repented of your sin, that you have become a child of God because of the finished work of Calvary and not because of anything that you have done. If you have not reached that point in your life, you are not saved. And this letter is not written to you in any form or fashion, but you can still glean gain from it. And we trust and pray that as the word is preached and taught, that you will find salvation. He's writing to the Colossian church at Colossae in Christ. They're in two places at the same time. They're both in Colossae, and they're in Christ. In Colossae, it's about a temporal location. They're soon to leave that when they die. Or when Christ comes, well, they miss that. They are, they're no longer there. So they've all died and, been, and gone to be with him. A local church, a temporal church, in a particular place, but they're also in Christ. A permanent, eternal location. A location that has consequences. A location which means that eventually these very ones who were just ordinary working stiffs in Colossae, eventually share in the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. Because they've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so Paul closes his greeting, verse, end of verse 2, with a very common uh, phrase. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, which he says in all 13 epistles. Um, it's a standard 
closure of his opening section of his epistles. Grace uh, kind of really does resonate with a New Testament Gentile uh, uh, mind. Peace resonates with a Jewish mind to the word shalom. And so he says both grace and peace uh, to you, those who are saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. And that brings us a close because of the introduction to Colossians. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we allow your word to change our hearts and our minds, that we may see a change in our lives. And let us help us, Father, not to gloss over any part of your word. Help us not to treat any part of your word as insignificant or of no value. Help us to read it from cover to cover and everything in between. Help us to feed on your word so that it may shape our lives and change our hearts and guide our walk and make us more like Christ. We pray for your grace upon us now as we leave ourselves in your hands in the Savior's name and for your sake alone. Amen.